This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Oh, great save again by it's Schwarzer. Huge save. Wonderful save. It's in. Australia lead against Ghana. It's the sort of heart that you need to make World Cups. Mark Schwarzer. After 128 years, Middlesbrough finally have a trophy to their name. Middlesbrough will play in Eindhoven in their first European final. Having beaten Hamburg in the last four, Fulham are back in the northern German city to take on Atletico in the first ever UEFA Europa League final. Premier League champions 2016, the amazing... Leicester City! Mark has had an incredible footballing career. It spanned clubs in Australia, Germany and England. Over 500 games in the Premier League, European club finals and representing his country for 20 years and in two World Cups. He turned professional with Sydney's side Marconi Stallions in 1990. He made 58 appearances and then moved to the Bundesliga holding an Australian and German passport. So from 1994, he played for both Dynamo Dresden and Kaiserslautern. Bradford City then came calling, playing in what was then the Division I of the Football League. He was managed by Chris Kamara, who bought Mark for £150,000 in November 1996. 16 games and three months later, he was on his way to Middlesbrough, where he spent over a decade. It was followed by five years on the banks of the Thames at Fulham. With spells at Chelsea under Jose Mourinho and at Leicester City with Claudio Ranieri, which included that incredible Premier League winning season. I'd like to go right the way back, if we may, first of all, to mum and dad leaving Germany on the boat, yep. as many did, to start a new life in Australia. It was an interesting one because my dad tells the story that um, back was it 19, mid 19, early mid 60s to mid 60s where they got married, they were getting married and my dad wanted to travel, wanted to leave Germany and I don't know whether that was because at the time also, you know, subscription was, was compulsory and my father was on the verge of being called up to the military and at the time he was also an amateur wrestler. So we're not talking WWE sort of stuff, um, we're talking about proper Greco-Roman. Yeah, you see at the the Olympics Absolutely. and stuff like that. And uh, he was he was he was decent. And then he broke his arm in a bout. And then so being called up to the military got put back. In the meantime, he got married. And he said to my mum at the time, "Well, I've already you know I've decided we've we're going to immigrate." And my mum was like, "What are you talking about? I, I don't want to go anywhere." 
and she and he said well it's already done and so we either get married and and uh then straight away might as well get divorced because i'm going and it's for two of us and he said by by the way it's only for two years anyway and then after that we can we can come back but my dad never had the intention of coming back and he sort of said to my mum where my mum actually asked the question where where is it where are we going my dad said well, it was argentina south africa and australia uh the first to reply we'll go to and that happened that australia were the first ones with a boat ticket and everything in the um the envelope and that was it and they used it as a honeymoon as well so it was like a two and a half week or three week boat trip yeah. out to australia back then and they talk about it and so that was like it was a wonderful trip and they enjoyed it and then they arrived in australia and they end up being in these kind of mini camps just until they found their feet and then my dad had a job he worked in a brewery there and then from there he decided after the two years that he didn't want to go back and he said to my mum well you want to go you can go and he said i'm staying of course she wasn't going to leave and at that time as well it just wasn't the thing to do so they stayed and my dad decided that he needed to working in the brewery probably wasn't the best thing to do in the long term so he decided to do apprenticeship and he learned to become a bricklayer and then from that point onwards he moved on and, and uh, he started as a bricklayer and started working on the building site and my mum took a good 10 to 15 years to get over homesickness she was desperate to go and I didn't know until not long ago that at the age of seven I was my mum and I and my sister uh, who's three years older than me, we all went back to Germany. My dad didn't come. And we were going this long trip. And it was like a three-month trip. Well, that's what it turned out to be. I thought it was a three-month trip, but apparently it was a, an indefinite trip. And my mum wanted to go back and see if she could live in Germany. And it was a, it was actually a trial. And uh, my dad didn't want to go. And we went and we just we had, the, we had, a, we had a nice time. I remember, remember parts of it. I remember particular moments of seeing my grandparents, her mum and dad, down in the on Friedrichshafen on the Bordensee, which is a lovely part of the, the country, and you know the, around Easter time, and see so there's particular moments in your mind that you remember distinctively, and then I remember leaving and seeing my dad, and I remember coming home, and the excitement of my dad seeing us again. I didn't realise why. I just thought he was just missed us that we were away for three months, which is understandable. But then all these years later on, you sort of find out that actually it was a trial. It was a trial to see whether my mum could live in Germany again and wanted to move back. And then she found herself in a, in a, in a difficult position that she actually was missing Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, so the kind of the tides had started to turn and that's why we went back. So it could have been very, very different for me. Uh, hugely different. Could be. But it started for you in 1972. Yep. North Richmond. Well, it's now really a suburb of uh, the uh, of Sydney and, yep. and the great metropolis, but of course in the shadow of the Great Blue Mountains as well. Yeah, it's a beautiful place uh, to grow up. I mean, and, and in particularly in the time that uh, I grew up there, and it was, it, you know, it's pre-internet, pre all that sort of stuff, pre all these games, games consoles, and all that sort of stuff. And we we used to play. I mean, you hear it all the time. You hear people over here tell stories about you played in the street, and the, and and the the normal. The normal kind of um, rule was home before the streetlights go on. And that's what you did. And you basically just went throughout the neighborhood and you had all your friends. And we used to go down to the creek and, you know, hunt for tadpoles and keep them as long as we could. And hopefully they turn into frogs one day. And, you know, you just ride your bikes around, you play football, play cricket in the street, just anything and everything. Dogs used to come with us mm -hmm. and you just used to roam all the way through town. And then whoever. Whoever's parent would open the door up and say, come on, who's having lunch? Come on, there's sandwiches. And that's where we'd end up. 
soccer was that part of it then and I call it soccer because in the end it, it would be soccer but there would have been rugby league rather than Aussie rules which is more towards Melbourne and whatever. particularly when I was growing up so it was the heartland of rugby league and the cricket was obviously always very prominent Everywhere. there as well soccer was big but it was just in Australia from a, from, a, from the vast majority of Australians it was just seen as well, what they called it was a, it's a very derogative word here in the UK. Um, but in Australia, it was in a reference to Europeans who moved out to Australia. And um, I was actually classed as one. And, and they called it that ball. That's what they called it. And I was, I was kind of like, wow, that was just normal. And the way you said it, I mean, we, we would say often, it's us, the guys from, from Europe, European backgrounds against the Aussies. The thing is, I loved all sports. So I played at school. I played cricket, rugby league, basketball. Water polo. Yeah, I played water polo. I loved it. Loved any sport and every sport. Uh, I played, we played in, we did an inner school visits uh, with another school called Lake Illawarra, which is down south near Wollongong. And they're a very, very big rugby league school. And we got beaten, I can't remember, we got beaten something like 50 something to 12 or something like that, or 60 to 12 or something. And I scored all 12 points for our team. And... I was asked to go on trial for the rep- representative sides down there and I was like, oh, I can't. My parents don't even know I'm playing. If my parents knew I was playing, they'd, they'd absolutely you know, tear shreds off me. They allowed me to play one time and at that time they just introduced uh, you know, permission slips and then from that point onwards, I practiced a little bit and knew how to sign my parents' signatures and from that point onwards, <laughs> I used to do it myself because I just wanted to play and I loved it and yeah, it was just... Mostly the, the school soccer team played rugby league, played basketball. Yeah. Did everything. We, we did everything. Yeah, yeah right. and I loved I it. So you'd started at Colo Cougars. Yeah, Colo Cougars, Cougars. Yeah, yeah. So that was the my local club from the primary school. Yeah, straight from primary school. school. Kind of like you know, under sevens I played, and you went all the way through. And I I stayed there until and I was. What were you? What position were you playing? Uh, at the beginning, like the young ages. So from up to about seven till about nine, ten years old, you played everywhere. Everyone just played every position. And then from the age of 10, various teams, my dad was coaching as well because parents couldn't do it anymore. My dad didn't really want to coach, but then they were desperate. So my dad said, okay, I'll do it. And it was either, we either won games really convincingly or we got beaten quite heavily. And nobody wanted to go in goal. So my dad's the coach. I've got to do as I'm told. And I just went in goal. And my dad says to this day, I went in goal because I kept tripping over my two, own two feet. Uh, maybe maybe he's onto something, I don't know. But uh, I reluctantly went in. But I also played for the, 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 the first or the, the better team of that age group. And I'd play for the, the bottom, the next team down. And I'd play out, out in the field with them. So I got my fix of playing out in the field. And again, you know, we talk about today about kids overplaying, playing too much football, too many games. I grew up playing sometimes three games a weekend and games back to back as in goal, as an outfield player, and then the next day I'd play in goal again. So eventually, yeah, it's Marconi, yep. which is the team that you really start to find yourself and, and your feet with. I had a few other clubs in between which were also very instrumental and, and, and important for my development. I played for the Pena Association for a year. Actually, funny enough, I Literally was there for one year. We had about 55 games that season. I played about five. I was the number two goalkeeper. And a guy called Zelko Kalak, 
who became kind of my my mm. rival throughout my whole career and we, we'd first come across each other's path at the age of 12 years old so the parallels were were incredible marconi was the big step and uh it was a uh, it was at the time it was the most glamorous club in australia it was the biggest football club or soccer club uh it was one of the most successful and uh it was it was really really sort of orientated at a really big youth system and a development program and and, and pathway into the first team and of course it was of, of italian background so they were very very passionate people marconi stallions where you made your name and then you're thinking of going back to your roots was it a conscious decision that it would be a german club to go back to well if you think about the time there was little option because it was pre-European Union as we know it, so that the movement across uh, various countries so in Europe did didn't you, exist. you had dual passports? I, had, I have dual passports, of yes. Germany. Yeah, so oh, right. at the time, each club could only have three foreigners, and to go outside of Germany as a goalkeeper unknown from Australia was almost almost impossible. I mean, people did it. Obviously, the most, most well-known one in this country, Mark Bosnich, did it. So for me, the natural place was to go to Germany because I had a German passport, so I was a non-foreigner, didn't take up a uh, one of the positions, and I understood a lot of German. I didn't. I spoke it a little bit, but not fluently. So, and my mum, my dad desperately would have loved me to go back to Germany as well, because obviously back to his homeland and back to trying to you know show the relatives, the family, and yeah, it was something special. You didn't really make too many appearances, did you? But Dinamo Dresden, as you mentioned, was yep. where, where you first went. And that was in its way by that stage, you thinking hopefully I would get across necessarily to England or not? No, initially when I first went to Germany, it was about forging a career in Germany. My, I mean, like most kids, growing up in Australia, the Premier League or the, the first division back then was always the first league you've thought about and you talked about. And we used to get match of the day on a Monday night in Australia. So delayed telecasting. I used to sneak out of my room and watch it. Is my... this why you supported Liverpool and Craig Johnson? Uh, yes, because I saw it. It was the only football we kind of got on TV. And yeah, he was the first Aussie who didn't play for Australia, but first Aussie that made it big, really. And and you just went, well, that that's what I want to do. Probably one of the reasons as well why there's such a hugely they are so hugely supported in Australia and particularly of my generation there's so many people who support Liverpool because of Craig Johnson. So yeah, that I, I did and and so when I first went to Germany it was about trying to be successful in Germany, trying you know I felt like this could really work for me, but it was really tough. So. They were like, you know, what is, what is this guy? He's, he's got a German passport, but he's Australian, really, because he speaks with an Australian accent. Only speaks a little bit of German, but I understood most of it. And then I thought, well, you try coming to a country where the language is, the dialect is so different to, you know, if you go to various parts of this country, it's sometimes still difficult to understand what people are saying because of various dialects. And Germany is exactly the same. You've got such severe dialects in different areas, and some of them are really, really difficult. To I still sometimes have problems understanding, even though now I speak fluent German. And uh, it was tough. And it was five years after unification. So the wall that came down in uh, 1989, and I was there in 1994. There were, like, Dresden was still pretty much ruins. Coming from Australia, and experiencing, you know, what Australia was like, and it was pretty, you know, it's pretty forward and modern and everything else. To going to literally going back in time, 
I managed to get an appearance. I mean, I had the, the current Russian national team manager, Stanislav Chichesov, who was the number one goalkeeper at the time. So he was playing for Russia at the time and uh, he was he was the number one. So it was very hard to, to get an opportunity to play. And it wasn't until towards the end of the season where the, the club was struggling financially also in the league and the uh, the president was was no longer funding a plane from the private jet from to come back after national team games. So it were two games that I ended up playing at home and I played well in both of them that enabled there to be other interests mm. for me at come the end of the season to to move on. And and then to Kaiserslautern. Kaiserslautern, yeah. So Kaiserslautern were a huge club. You know, they were, at the time they were the one of only two or three teams that had never been relegated out of the Bundesliga, but they'd gone through a period of time uh, where they they actually just completed recently a, a major refurbishment of the stadium so they were had a lot of debt so they sold quite a few of their main established players and they brought in a lot of uh, new players in, the, in that off season that I arrived and I being one of them but all the rest of them were who were kind of kind of trying to replace key players were players that either came from teams that were relegated or teams or from the second division so it was a huge step up and uh, just struggled. You know, we, as a team, we struggled. I got into the, I got into the team. I think it was five games before the winter break, and I ended up playing really well in the first game. Second game, okay. Third game, not so great. And then the fourth game for me was an unbelievable experience because we played up in Rostock in the north of Germany, and we're talking. I think it was the first week of December, and this is my first time in Europe living first experience of European winter, the pitch was like literally like a, an ice skating rink and there was snow everywhere and I wore leather studs and I'd never ever wore leather studs before. The ball was literally, I was uh, like, I don't know, it was like trying to hold on to, a, to bare hands with, you know, dishwashing liquid in your hand to try and catch yeah. a ball. It was, it was impossible almost. And we lost 4-0. And I, I, I didn't play well. I, I think one or two of the goals were my fault. And that was my last game for him. And, you know, we, we were struggling as a team. And come the, the, the winter break, after shortly afterwards, the manager lost his job. And, yeah, the whole thing changed. I never got a chance anymore. So did you find Bradford City or did Geoffrey Richmond find you? No, Geoffrey Richmond didn't find me. Chris Kamara saw me <laughs> and identified me only through an agent who brought me over at the time. So I, I'd been in contact with another agent in, from Scotland and a couple of times just before coming over on trial. And he just basically just kept bumping me off. Just thought, nah, he's playing. He's not even playing in Germany. What am I going to do with him? Not interested. And he, he didn't, he couldn't, he just didn't tell me, wouldn't tell me. So I had a bit of a setback in that regard. And then I found an agent, a guy called Barry Saltman who at the time dealt with quite a few Australians. And all I can say is he stuck to his word. So I called him, introduced myself. He went, right, give me a couple of days, I'll come back to you. He phoned around a whole lot of Australian players that he knew and asked about me. He, he told me he got very positive reviews from people and he ran me back. He organized a trial at Manchester City at the time because Steve Koppel was the manager. Mm -hmm. So a very, very different Manchester City as we know it today. <laughs> so I went to Manchester, I went and played a Brezzi game and the Brezzi game was against Bradford City so the story goes Phil Neal was the assistant or the, the, the reserve team coach on that day went into the office where Chris Kamara was and said to him I hope you've got a good team out today and Chris went yeah 
yeah, we're pretty strong. Got a good side. Got some uh, first team players coming back from injury. Yeah, we're pretty good. Yeah, and he says, yeah, I've got this goalkeeper who's done well at training, but we really need to test him in a in a game situation. He says, okay, great. And Chris Kamara has told me this story, and he said, all I'm thinking in my head is actually I need a goalkeeper. This will be interesting. So we played the game, and I played well, and we won one nil. And I'm I was very much involved the whole time. Took a lot of crosses. Had a lot of lot of things to do. I was sitting on the bus after the game. And I remember sitting on the bus, and this bearing in mind, I'm trialing at Manchester City, and I, all my intentions are, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, if this all goes well, if they want to sign me, I want to sign for Manchester City. All I say, I look out the window, and I say, I could play here. I could actually easily play at this place, like Bradford City. I was like, I, I wish this was my opportunity, and that was it. That night, I get a phone call from Barry saying, you must have played well. I said, why is that? And he goes, well, because Chris Kamara's been on the phone and he wants to sign you. And he said he wants to take you on loan. And I said, well, firstly, thank you, I'm flattered, but I'm not going anywhere on loan. loan. I need to sever all ties with Germany. I need to get out of there. And, and secondly, I said, Manchester City have first, first rights because they've brought me out, they've done everything properly, and they've got first options. So he said, absolutely. So I went back to Germany. The next, actually, next day I went up, caught up with Steve Koppel uh, the first team were training and they, they, they were um, preparing for a game and he said to me, listen, you know, I said, heard you played really well last night. He said, yeah, we want to get the deal done. And he said, hopefully we can get it done in the next couple of days. And I said, brilliant. He said, so, okay, you're going to have to go back to Germany, sort of all that. I said, well, but we're in touch very shortly. I said, brilliant. So I was very excited, went back home, back to Germany. And I think two days later, Steve Koppel walked out. He resigned. <laughs> Carried on for a couple of weeks longer and uh, Phil Neal called and said, to my wife, actually, I was away with the, with the, with the team and she, he rang at home and said, uh, have you got the contract through? And my wife said, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we need Mark to sign it and get come over. And she said, well, no, I'm not signing that. And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, there's a, there's a zero missing off one of the figures. And he went, well, hang on, let, let me find out for you. I'll come back to you. He came back and just went, oh, sorry, very, very sorry. It was a typing mistake. So at that stage... I was speaking to Barry about it at the time and I was saying, well, what's going on? He said, listen, he says, it's such in disarray. There's so much going on behind the scenes. They don't know whether they're coming or going. Um, there's a lot of problems. And he says, as far as I'm concerned, I think you're well within your right now to decide if you want to go. Because he said, Bradford City have come in now and they're willing to buy you. So I said, okay, fine. Let's see where we go. You mentioned your wife, Paloma. Yep. Half Spanish, half yes. Filipino. Yes. And a lady that you met in the King's Cross nightclub <laughs> back in Sydney. Yeah, I try not to tell my kids. I mean, kids, my kids know that, and they kind of go, "We can't, How are we to say to our kids, you can't meet anyone in a nightclub?" <laughs> and it's it's that classic line. You're pretty. She said pesky. Yeah, apparently so. Yeah, I was. Yeah, and I did say to her on the night, "If I'd only met you a little bit earlier, I would have asked you to come and live with me in Germany." And I was literally I'd met on that first night, and I was moving a month later. So yeah, it was it was for me. It was yeah. I knew. So I've always known. I've known things from a. I know things in advance. Certain things, I just always know what I want, and I just knew, even though she didn't know at the time, that she knew. <laughs> <laughs> I had to convince her a little bit. Well, everyone knew eventually because you married at Shelley Beach. Manly. We did. We did. Yeah, it was beautiful, and there was no there was no real connection in terms of why Shelley Beach. It was a case that both of us didn't want to get married in a church. We used a celebrant. And we wanted to have more of a kind of celebration rather than a proper big old wedding. There were 35 people that came along, so our, our closest friends and family. 
yeah, it was wonderful. It was more of a celebration and just have a good time and have have a party. And it was, yeah, it was wonderful. We've got to England and I'm going to, because we could talk to you for hours here, I'm going to float in on the sides that you played for and just ask you of a, a story from some of the greats as well to illustrate what you did. Because I also want to bring in uh, the other half of Mark Schwarzer as well yep. with Paloma and with your family and... Edward Meggs Morrison too. We'll come back to that <laughs> in a short while. So eventually it's Bradford City. Didn't play too many times for Bradford City before there was an opportunity with Middlesbrough. I can just picture you going to Cammy though and uh, telling him you're on your way and him going, unbelievable, Mark. No, they came to me and said, we, we've had offers. We've had like numerous offers for you. Apparently there were four offers for me. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 that and and obviously they've activated your your, your clause and and you're free to go and speak to them, and that's how it basically happened. My last game was against Sheffield Wednesday in the FA Cup, which I I, I might add we were so so unlucky to have been mm. knocked out. Uh, Fifteen minutes to go, massively deflected goal, lost one nil at, at Valley Parade. It was a, it was a unbelievable. I, mm. I I still look back at the, those three four months of being some of my most enjoyable times playing football because. I actually got the joy back. I was I was pretty down in Germany. I was miserable. Was contemplating maybe going back to Australia, start afresh again, and I was beaten a lot mentally as well in Germany. The old goalkeeper and Andreas Bremer. One day I was coming in right at the end of the time I was there, and I would just been I'd been called up for the national team, and it, and it was. Rightly so, do people raise eyebrows and go, "How could he be called up for the national team?" I wasn't playing in Kaiser Lull, and it was just because. Uh, Bozza pulled out last minute mm-hmm. because he couldn't couldn't afford to miss any games for I think it was yeah it was Aston Villa at the time, and they needed someone close by. And there was a game in Saudi Arabia, and I went and I played the last fifteen minutes, came on as a sub, and that was for more reasons than one. That was a pivotal moment for me. Mm-hmm. But what actually happened was that I got I got told just at training I think it was that I had been called up for the national team, and I came back in after the training session, back in the change room, and as I walk in. I'm overhearing Andreas Bremer and uh, Gary Ammon, the goalkeeper, saying, Gary Ammon going, did you hear? Schwartz has been called up for the national team. What, for basketball? And I and I walked in and he looked at me and just quickly turned around. We're bearing him and I'm like, I'm 23 years old, 24 years old. I'm looking at this guy going, really? Why? Like, what, what, what have you got to prove? Anyway, so I went to the national team and that's how I got introduced. That's how I came across Barry Saltman. That changed my Brilliant. my my opportunities in, in 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 my footballing career. Still to come on my sporting life on Talk Sport. And that game against Uruguay, I was I was m- like literally probably thirty seconds away from being substituted before that penalty shootout. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. My Sporting Life on Talk Sport with Mark Schwarzer. Middlesbrough, I want to talk very quickly about some of the, those that coached you as well. Well, of course, your own, your, your own man as a goalkeeper, and the goalkeepers stick together compared to the rest of the side. But Brian Robson, Terry Venables, Steve McLaren, Gareth Southgate, now that looks like a fantastic list. Yeah, don't forget as well. I mean, in terms of my coaching, mm. my direct coaching, I. I you know, I, I had uh, Mike Kelly, goalkeeping coach, mm. then Peter Shilton, then um, uh, Stephen Pears for, for a couple of seasons, and then uh, Paul Barron. So they were huge influences as, as well on my on my career, in particular the early stages of my career. And the story is this, when I left, when I had the opportunity to leave um, Bradford City, Everton and Middlesbrough were the two that basically I was uh, I was allowed to go and speak to. And Everton, I remember going there, Joe Roll was the manager. We'd beaten them three or four weeks beforehand in the FA Cup. Uh, Chrissy Waddle scored from 40 yards, chipped Neville Southall, which was a remarkable goal. And we went there to Goodison, we beat them, and it was it was incredible. We, we were we were brilliant. And um, came back to the stadium and speaking, I think it was a guy called, I think it's Johnson was the, 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 the chairman at the time. Is that is that right mm-hmm. in saying so? Yes, it was. Yeah. So met him, and, and his introduction to me was, Come on, you want to go see this? We'll go. I'll show you the stadium. And he opened the door, and he opened the door, literally opened it. We kind of poked our heads out. And he went, "Oh, well, you know the stadium. You were here the other week," and closed it. And then we went back into his office, into the office. They offered myself and my wife a coffee, which we said yes. My agent went in the room, and literally within five minutes, he came storming out, and went, "Right, okay, we're off." And I went, "But we haven't got our coffee yet." He goes, "No, we're off." <laughs> <laughs> and I went, "Okay." And then, and and. Um, the, the chairman of Everton at the time walking by me going, oh, you'll be back. You'll be back. And my agent going, no, no, no. When we walk out these doors, that's it. We're not coming back. Mm. And we drove up the road to Manchester and met up with Brian Robson and Viv Anderson. And within 15 minutes, I w- I'd already agreed everything that I was going to sign for Middlesbrough because I, again, I, bu- I bought into the story. I bought into the, the vision. I bought into the project. And the fact is that Everton, Joe Royal wanted me, but the chairman was Peter terrible. Johnson did. Peter Johnson, that's it. It was it, actually it was embarrassing how he behaved. So I went from that to to Middlesbrough with with Brian Robson and Viv Anderson, and I was straight away right. These guys want me, and they've got real big plans with this club, and this is a huge opportunity. What about those days at Middlesbrough? Early on, two finals. Yeah, <laughs> so close but so far. The first one was the one that I just 
and I think most Middlesbrough fans this day still can't believe we lost uh, against Leicester. And there's no disrespect to Leicester, but on the day, you know, we 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 should have done, but we should have held on and should have won the game. Extra time, one nil up, and then Emil Heskey, one of the nicest men in football, scores unfortunately, and it goes to a replay. and And unfortunately, I missed the replay. I, I broke I broke a bone in my leg, and I missed it. But you know, we 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 didn't play well, and and on that night, Leicester Leicester deserved to win it. But that was the one that I felt that we should have should have could have should have won it, <laughs> and we didn't. FA Cup. Obviously, yeah, there was so many things going on, and from the off, and the fact that Chelsea scored after forty odd seconds is, uh, yeah, surprising, but not really. Mm. When you think of the way things were behind the scenes, um, there was there was a little bit of anarchy on the bus before the game. One of the guys released some, did something, an ad, uh, sorry, a, a piece in the newspaper, and it wasn't it wasn't very flattering towards Ravine, Fabrizio Ravinelli. Mm. Bearing in mind we're playing an FA Cup final. And it comes out the day of, and you get your own teammate who's not speaking. The it's just it was all wrong. So unfortunately, it didn't work out for us on that on that particular season, and we didn't have enough to stay up, which was which was even. I mean, in one way, it was probably the best thing that happened to Middlesbrough because went down, regrouped, and found out who really wanted it there. That's and who right. Didn't. That's right. And you know, that's when Annie Townsend, Paul Merson were signed, Gaza. Mm-hmm. Um, we got to another cup final, which again was against Chelsea in the League Cup. And it was, uh, you know, people, what you can't underestimate was what an accomplishment it was to get to that cup final that particular time as a as a League One side uh, or championship side to come up against a Premier League side at that mm-hmm. stage was 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 pretty, pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we were, you know, we got beaten by a, by a better side on the day. Mm-hmm. It was also at a time when you were really going to establish yourself with the Socceroos. Yes, there was a defining moment. Oh, when I think about it, it's like I moved over, and we obviously were relegated in the championship. I broke, like I said, I broke my fibula. It took longer to heal. It it broke again. It was cracked initially, and then I broke it properly, trying to come back um, and play towards the end of the season. And then I went away, said go away, rested up and it'll be fine. And I came, uh, basically, I think about three quarters of the way through the holiday, the the physio rings me and says, how are you? And I go, he goes, are you running now? And I said, no, I'm just, I'm barely, I can't, I can barely jog. And he went, no, no, you need to come back. So got back on a plane, came back over, they re X-ray, went, no, you need to, we need to plate it. So it took four months for my recovery rather than t- like literally should have been probably six weeks. And um, so I, I got back in the team, got back fit, got back in the team. I played about 10 games in the championship and we were doing well. And then the national team, uh, Terry Venables as a manager, the team was uh, selected for the qualifiers for the 1998 World Cup, so 1997. And then the assistant manager at the time came out and said publicly that he didn't think I was going to be selected because I didn't play enough games to warrant being selected. So Mark Bosnich was the clear number one. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, That was absolutely clear. But... I thought I believed that I was hundred percent should have been at, the, at number two, because based on where we're all playing, who's playing, who's not, and everything else, and the two goalkeepers he did actually select, which was very contradictive to what the assistant manager said, had played six games between them in the league in Australia, and I'd played about ten games in the championship in England, and apparently I didn't get selected because I didn't play enough games. 
but but there was other reasons. I know I know the other reasons. So there's reasons. Was one of them was because they wanted to get one of the goalkeepers over to England, and they needed to justify the fact that he was number two behind Mark Bosnich, who was a clear number one, and therefore that's why they had to include him in the squad and not have me there at all to justify it. But it didn't work. Um, anyway, they missed out. Unfortunately, we missed out. Didn't qualify for the World Cup. Venables left afterwards. The assistant manager actually took over as 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 a as the manager, and I basically said that I wasn't available to play. I wanted to concentrate on my club football to make sure I had enough games under my belt. <laughs> so once the assistant manager left and then Frank Freener was appointed as the manager in 2000, I think it was 2000, yeah, 2000, he came over to see me and said, I'd love you to have be back involved in the national team. And I said, absolutely. And from that point onwards, I basically became number one. Obviously, Bozza had some off-field issues. Mm-hmm. and um, And from that point onwards... You know, from from what happened to him off off the field, I benefited on and and allowed you know gave it gave me a chance to to make my my claim for the number one spot. Going to come on and talk about Fulham and that move, and then later in your career in a while. But with that still in mind about you, the 2006 World Cup, the Socceroos as good as it's ever been for the country to start with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was. It's named the Golden Generation, and I. It was a remarkable side, a remarkable squad of players. At that time, we had eight players playing in the Premier League regularly, week in, week out. We had two playing in Serie A, one playing in La Liga, two or three playing in the the Dutch League. It was a great side. And as with all tournament football and knockout football, of which you've played your part in so many, at times, it's not just about the goals you score, it's about the saves from the penalty spot that the keeper makes. You've been a great penalty stopper saver all your career what what is it that's brought that magic because that's one of the headline parts of what you've managed to do at those really difficult moments in various games i don't know i mean i i I think it's more about i've always worked incredibly hard i was never the most gifted so you've always worked and worked and worked on things um i've you're always trying to prove someone wrong. You're always trying to prove your critics wrong. At that game against Uruguay, I was, I was m- like literally probably thirty seconds away from being substituted before that penalty shootout. Uh, the reserve keeper Zoka Kalik was warming up on the sideline, and I remember looking over, going, "What's going on here? Like, is this for real?" I'm thinking, "I'm in a different movie here. There's something going on. I, I don't understand this." And he was legitimately going to make the substitution. Mm. And fortunately for me, Brett Edmonton had cramps and had to go off. Then he was our third substitution and they couldn't make the change. And funny enough, I saw Gus Hiddink at a funeral, unfortunately, at Pim Verbeek's, the late Pim Verbeek's funeral. And he saw me and said to his wife, he goes, there's only two or three mistakes I've made in my entire career. One of them was when he dropped me for the national team uh, at the World Cup against Croatia. And then he said, otherwise, I almost made another one. And I almost substituted him out for the penalty shootout. So lucky that didn't happen. So it was just one of those things, you know. He, I don't know, had this idea in his head that he sort of stayed with it, didn't he? As well, I think he was. That was always his idea. That at yeah, times, yeah, it, it was. And he strange. kind of he did it. He did it at uh, the World Cup in in the semifinals. in Brazil. In Brazil, he did it. Yeah. So it was something that he looked at the stats and. But the thing was, he didn't look at the stats with us. He looked at the training session the day before and he said, I thought, he goes, I had a feeling that he was just, he was making more saves than I was in a training session the day before the game. Mm. You know, 
ultimately is the manager that could have changed so many things but it didn't so yeah um and ironically i mean i did it i did it in 1993 uh it was only my second ever game for australia um and we we beat canada mm-hmm. and i saved two penalties in that night as well and we and we got through did did you plan that 2003 win against England when Wayne Rooney made I his did. debut? Of course I did. Of course I did. Funny Jeff is that for only ever goal for England. <laughs> <laughs> Wayne Rooney's debut. Of course I did. Yeah, that no, was... You know what? The thing that is, was a big moment, though, for course. Australia. And Sven didn't, didn't fathom it. He didn't realise it. And I think afterwards he realised, hang on, oops, I didn't realise the rivalry. I didn't quite understand it, and I didn't. And I mean, maybe England, probably England didn't really. I mean, and rightly so. England at the time probably just thought, yeah, what's in Australia? The fans got it. They haven't qualified for a long time for anything. You know, what are we going to be worried about these guys? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them playing in the Premier League, but, you know, know, what have we got to worry about it? Yeah. So that's what happens when you underestimate uh, that rivalry. Another extraordinary part of your footballing story, really. Yeah, it was uh, at a time, you know, obviously I was at Middlesbrough for nearly 12 years, 11 and a half years, and there was going through a lot of changes at Middlesbrough. I kind of suspected for a little while that they they thought that I was past it, and my legs had gone, a whole lot of different things. And Gareth wasn't quite in control of a lot of things, I think, at the time. They wanted to sign me on, an, on another year, but they were kind of half-hearted about it, weren't really um, that committed on it, and kept giving a lot of excuses and a lot of reasons as to why they believed that one year was all they were prepared to do. And I was like, okay, that's fine. I don't, I, I, I respect that. That's fine. But you know, I, I know I, I can get longer elsewhere. And you know what? It's probably best for both of us for a new challenge. I'd been here for that long. I think. I think everybody wanted a change. I think the fans were happy enough for me to move on. I think I was ready, more than ready to work, move on. But it's hard, you know, when you've been to somewhere for that long, it's a, it's a big step because you kind of feel this enormous amount of loyalty and... For the uh, fans as well. Uh, yeah, for everyone, yeah. And you've been there for that long period of time and it's such a big part of your life and you think, oh, it's a bit daunting. But then once, once I, I'd had numerous conversations with, uh, with Gareth about it, and because you know, we know we're, we're friends and we were friends then and we're, we're mm-hmm. still friends now so there's absolutely zero animosity and, and, I, and I have the utmost respect for him and it was tough for him very very tough for him and he was brilliant afterwards you know he wrote me a letter um, even though he could have easily just picked up the phone and spoke to me but he wrote me a letter handwritten letter um, more than I can say that I received from from the club you know the club sent me a letter typed out three or four months later which was disappointing but with Gareth he was he was he was brilliant Mm. And I needed it. I needed it. And maybe Middlesbrough didn't need it. I don't, I don't know. But it didn't work out very well for them the next season. But, you know, it was, it was, it was disheartening because when we played, when I went to Fulham, I signed for Fulham, it was, it was, it was great. I had an extra spring in my step. I needed that bit of a, a rejuvenation, bit of a kick up the backside a little bit. And I had to prove people wrong. And I wanted to prove people wrong. And I loved being backed in the corner like that. And... It was the right time, and then when we played, when we played Fulham, uh, sorry, played yeah Fulham, we played Middlesbrough at uh, mm. Craven Cottage, the first game um, in the early part of the season. We beat them three 0 and I didn't didn't celebrate, didn't get carried away. Ball went out for a goal kick, went over to it in front of the Middlesbrough fans, and this one of Middlesbrough fans picked it up and literally was about a meter away from me, and just threw it at me, smashed it at me in my chest, and it 
bounced back out and back into the crowd. And I just stood there and I just thought, you know what? It just sums it up, doesn't it? You kind of go, and that person got ejected and you just kind of go, right, okay, and you move on. But I got booed every time I touched the ball. Mm-hmm. And then the next game we played up at, at uh, the Riverside, I got booed when my name got called out in the warm-up. I got booed when I touched the ball. And I'm just like, why? And after the game, we drew nil nil, and I played well up at uh, the Riverside. And I got people started to, to blame me and say, you know, you've just sent Middlesbrough down. And I went, how have I sent Middlesbrough down? It was one game. It's a 38-game season. Playing nil-nil at home against us doesn't mean you're going to get relegated. If that actually ultimately is a result, the result that gets you relegated, that's not the game. That's It's a course of the whole season. If you're not good enough after 38 games, you're not good enough. And that's what was disappointing, very, very disappointing. And I didn't, I didn't go back for a long, long time, and I didn't have anything to do with the club. And I, my, my son is actually a mad Middlesbrough fan. His favourite player of all time, all time, is Stuart Downing. And he talks about Stuart Downing being the best player of all time. Anyone. And he said, if I ever had Real Madrid, I'd still buy Stuart Downing right now. <laughs> <laughs> he, seriously, he's a mad Stuart Downing fan. And, um, yeah, so I, I yeah, it was disappointing. Really, really disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, so my son wanted to go to the playoff final when they played Norwich. And he said, Dad, can we go? And I'm like, okay. All right, I'll, I'll try and organise it. So I spoke to my agent. I said, could you ring the club and ask them if I could buy some tickets? So they said, yeah. They gave it, bought, I bought two tickets. And... What actually really, really disappointed me was that I paid my tickets and I was more than happy to pay for the tickets. They sent me the tickets and I didn't get the tickets until literally the day before the game. And I had to go, to, my wife had to go to the post office to collect them and pay the postage. <laughs> I was just like, wow. I went to the game and it was remarkable yeah. because I tried to, we went by, I went by train, went there with, with a neighbor of mine who are middle Middlesbrough fans mm. and try to keep it low key walking up uh, Wembley Way and keep my head down and got recognised and it took me about an hour and a half to get up to the stadium and you know the fans were amazing mm. and we sat right behind the goal in the full midst of all the Middlesbrough fans and they were amazing they were they were fantastic It's also a good chance for us to think about the Reading Stars programme yep. that the Premier League was very much involved in and, and again you got immersed, if I can put it that way, in all of this. And not just being able to read to classes and children of all ages, but also to write with your little star, Edward Meggs Morrison, 10 years old, whose family emigrate from England to Australia. And is this a little bit of autobiographical going on? It is, yeah. It's an experience, uh, a whole lot of experiences from myself Neil Montagnana Wallace, who who who's the co-writer with yep. you, yeah. and all the characters are a bit of all of us. And my wife's one of the characters in in the book later on in one of the next books, and uh, Neil's wife. So she, his wife is of Italian background. Obviously, my wife's like you said, Filipino, Spanish. Myself of German. So we there's there's a whole array of different characters that have different things, uh different uh, uh Neil's from a from the English background. So that's kind of where I we I'm in England. We kinda of, that's where we started from the you know, Meg's immigrating from Austra- uh from England to Australia. And the way that he he's accepted ultimately then in, in, in uh his little group and his little environment is through football and how football does break down barriers, how football unites people. Um, and it's such a powerful tool. 
Back to football and to those last two clubs now. Chelsea, yep. Jose Mourinho. Yeah. He missed you when you were gone. <laughs> or did he just say that? I had a, I had a remarkable uh, relationship with him. He was, uh, he was brilliant. He, I, I think what, what, was, what was really nice, I think he respected the fact that I gave him everything. I knew my position. I gave him everything, even though at times where I think he felt a little bit um, that he maybe I don't know, maybe he felt that he let me down a little bit in terms of the amount of games that, that I played. Because when I signed, I was very hesitant about signing because I was still playing for the national team at the time. And I wanted to play at the 2014 mm. World Cup. And I was worried about signing for, for Chelsea and not playing any games. Because I, I, I was if I was signing for Chelsea, I was signing as number two. <laughs> There, there was no two words about it. You know, Petr Cech was a clear number one, and um, that was my biggest concern. And he assured me that I'd play enough games. He was, he was great. He was demanding. It was gave me an unbelievable insight to see what it's like at the very, very top to compete, to have world class players in every position. You know, international breaks. There was me and John Terry still there. That's it. The team was gone. Everyone was all over the world. We, the demand day to day the intensity at training was incredible it was 85 90 percent of match intensity on training days every day and then of course your final trip was to a side that eventually you helped keep them up and then you well you, you I, a little yeah, bit yeah a little you? bit yeah don't, don't do yourself down I here so of, nigel pearson signed you yeah he did yeah yeah he did at leicester city obviously. yeah he did sign me at leicester city he gave me you know again i was I was like 41 years old and signed me and gave me an 18 month contract and you're like wow okay yeah what a project what an opportunity I was disappointed in the end more with Nigel than anything else and mm -hmm. I told him this so he knows it that he kind of he, he wasn't he wasn't uh, up front with me and we, we fell out in the end and to this day I actually have not spoken to him again unfortunately but it, you know it was just one of those things but listen what 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 the guys did particularly that last season as well and I and, and I don't have a problem with the decision what you know, Nigel no. left me out of the team. He dropped me out of the team and played Casper back in the side at the back end of that season. Mm. I don't have an issue with that. The issue I have is with what Nigel said to me and what he promised me and what he said and what he promised were, and what he actually did with different things. And he never spoke to me about it. And it wasn't until he realised how upset I was about it all, more at him than anything else. The actual decision, I had no issue with. And, and actually, look at it. Look at the results. In the last 10 games, the guys won eight, drew one and lost one. Oh, lost, I think, seven, seven two draws, one loss, and stayed up. And that was incredible. And Casper played a big part of that. So I don't have any problems with that whatsoever. And then obviously it continued on. And it continued on. And it continued on. I mean, that's that 18-month period, I think, I think the guys lost four games in 18 months. Incredible. In the Premier League. And the rest is history. And the say. rest is history. So, yeah, it, it was... What was it like being part of that and not quite part of that in the yeah, end? You're old enough to feel that way, I guess, though. Yes. So I, I've always had the stance that if you don't play, I, for me personally, if I don't play, I never really feel part of it. <laughs> so the hard, one of the hardest days I've had in football is that last home game against Everton where the trophy's presented because... I'm so proud of what these guys have done and you don't want to you don't want to take anything away from it because it's just incredible. And then the whole presentation thing is not great because it's the guys that don't play games, you kind of not enough games. So some of these guys played four games and didn't get a medal. Mm. So you get called out and you get go out stand on the side 
You don't even go up on the stage. You don't go up on the stage until afterwards. So talk about all this whole team thing. There's no team thing in that one. You only get called up afterwards when the trophy's handed over, and it's just kind of like, mm, it's awkward. It's not great. But listen, scenes that you just think, it's, it's a Hollywood movie. Yeah, and whether they actually ever becomes one or not, who knows. But on the day, it was a Hollywood movie because you, you've just got to stand there and go, did this actually really happen? Is this really happening here at Leicester? I mean, that sort of stuff doesn't happen. Well, it does, but you know, it's, it literally is that once, once in a lifetime. That is that 5,000 to 1. Everything mm. about it was right. The bookies got it right. Absolutely. It was 5,000 yeah. to 1. It just, just came in. Just finally want to think, you know, it's been such an incredible... Uh, life for you and your family and it's only half time really with your yep. life isn't it you yep. know and, and, and your family and you've got so much more to do together and all to do as individuals as well I just do want to finally touch on the medal of the Order of Australia wow your your folks how proud the only regret I have about that is that I was not able to be in Australia to receive it and I went to I went to a Australia House here in in London mm. to receive it at a ceremony, which was nice, but I, that I wasn't actually in Australia to receive it. That was the the one disappointment. Um, no, but it's, listen, it's it's special to have to have received it. Um, it's an honour. Um, it's nice to have been nominated and and accepted, and and it's uh, nice that you kind of you know you get recognised. And the other one of the other things that I've probably even slightly prouder of about prouder of, is that right prouder, yeah, yeah. prouder to be they have do a, more pride in more pride in a couple of years you know every year they they release stamps of various sporting people and i've got a have got a stamp which is pretty cool tell my grandchildren one day by the way you know your grandfather's got a stamp <laughs> that's fabulous that's pretty cool yeah i think that is a stamp of class and, and <laughs> for me and for all of us here at talk sport it's been all the way hasn't it from the blue mountains in sydney to the leafy suburbs of Surrey and thank you for taking us on your My Sporting Life journey, Mark Shorts. Thank you. You've been listening to Talk Sports My Sporting Life with me, Mark Saggers. Thanks for listening and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top Talk Sport content. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.